This morning, the privilege is mine to start a four-week series on the birth of Jesus Christ, but this year I want to do it in a little different format. It's the same text in many cases, but looking at some background things that we don't look at every Christmas, having preached this story now 47 times in 47 years of pastoring, I try to find a new approach. The scripture doesn't change, but hopefully the lens through which we examine the scripture can change. And so today, I want to treat this like a doctor's file in a doctor's office. When you go to see a doctor, regardless of the need, there are several things that you have to fill out that first visit, your name and all those things. But tell us about your family history, your medical history, what allergies you have, what brings you today, what medications you're on. And we go through all that stuff. And by the time the doctor sees you, he has a pretty good snapshot of who you are. It's not by accident that that four gospels tell about Jesus, but it's also not by accident that the one who is a doctor tells us more about the birth of Jesus than any other. Why? Matthew was a tax collector. He wasn't really into OBGYN stuff. He was into gathering money. John was a fisherman. He didn't think a whole lot about the process of pregnancy. He was thinking about how to make more money to get more fish in his boat. We think of John Mark, and he was a defector, you know, in the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. He went home early, and Paul said, I'm not taking you back. Barnabas said, yes, we are. He said, no, we're not good Baptists. They had a downright ugly meeting right there at the start. And so Barnabas said, I'll take John Mark. And you remember Paul took Silas. And that John Mark turned out to be right, right good boy. In fact, as he matured later in life, Paul would say, and bring Mark with you. And that Mark got his sermon material, got his material for writing the gospels from hearing Peter preach. Not a bad preacher. And John Mark gave us the first gospel, just 16 chapters. Mark was not interested so much in the birth of Jesus as really understanding who is he. Luke, Dr. Luke had to follow it. And if we had the time this morning, I'd love to interview him, wouldn't you? Luke, what was it like when you met Mary? He didn't know her at 14. He didn't have the opportunity of, it, uh, uh, of visiting with her when she was first pregnant. He met her when she was much older. In fact, if we do just a little bit of math, and you know my math's not good, so I triple check this. So if it's wrong, forgive me. I was in the third grade a long time. But, but as I remember, she was 14, or about 13, 14, because that was the age when most young women got betrothed. So in her betrothal, she had been 13 to 14 years old, and she had an angelic visit. And, and our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is about four years off. So Jesus was actually born four years before Christ. That'll hit you at lunch. Christ was born four years before Christ. She was 14 at four. That means... Four, add four years to that, you get to 1 B.C. So four more years, 14, she's now 18. She has her baby, and somewhere around 62, 60, 62, the Gospel of Luke was written. So if she's 18 at 1 B.C., and it's written in 60, she's 78 when Dr. Luke said, Now, Mary, the word is out, you were a virgin. And you had a most unusual visit, and in your medical file it says that you'd never been with a man, and yet you had a baby. We got to talk, Dr. Luke said. She was, she, she, it was 64 years past the birth of Jesus, 78 years old, and yet she was sharp as a tack. Her mind was clear. Her thoughts were pure. She understood very vividly, as you would if you had that kind of a birth experience. You would remember. And, buddy, she remembered very, very well. This is Luke's attempt to get the facts on the birth of Jesus. Why? Well, as a believer, he just wanted to know. I've heard all these things about the miraculous birth. Mary, I got to know. He was a Gentile, not a Jew, so he had not awaited the Messiah. This was all new ground to him. 
But he was mystified because he'd come to know Christ, how this Jesus that had come as the Messiah of the Jews was now the Savior of even Gentiles. And he was enthroned. He said, I got I to know this about my master. He was very educated and well-written. He, he was a man who had questions. He, as a doctor, he had questions since the account had so many unusual aspects. You were 14. You were a virgin. You'd never been with a man. You had an angelic visit. You got pregnant. You went off to Bethlehem and then down to Egypt. Mary, I just, this has got a lot of twists and turns. Mary, talked to me as a doctor. And so you go to her testimony in Luke Chapter 1, in fact, if you'll look with me real quick, I just want to look at it with you quickly. Luke chapter 1, let, let's, let's remember what she said at the outset, or what Luke said at the outset. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke 1, 1. Let's remember what Luke, as a doctor, he's, he's compiling his file on the life of Jesus and begins at the birth, and he tells us more about the birth than any, but why did he do it? Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke is going to give us a preface to his letter uh, to his book to explain why he did what he did. Luke, it says in chapter 1, verse 1 of the gospel, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Stop. Many. Why, why would he say that? Some have been accurate, some mythical, and some to refute. Anytime two or more gathered, somebody's going to be a troublemaker. Luke said, you've read a lot of things about his birth. I, I have too, and some of them, in, in all candor, I threw away because they were either so mythologically oriented that it sounded like the gods had slept with a woman. That's, that's not it, to bring Christ in the world. Or they refuted it cannot be. She was never with a man. She couldn't possibly. She'd been sleeping around. And he said, that's not true. He said, Mary, many... Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the, uh, uh, of the word handed them down to us. And then Luke says, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It seemed good to me, verse 3, since I've carefully, I have carefully, did you notice that, with doctor's eyes and intent, with the that of a new believer, i got to know. I have carefully investigated everything from the very first. This word also means from above. The, the words are the same. From the very beginning and from above are the same. So it could well be, I've investigated these things that happened from above. That puts the spiritual aspect to his, to his record. Others, if it's from the first, meaning from the first of the news of your pregnancy, I, I've examined all of that. And I did it in order to write to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed or catechized. Catechism is what the Catholic Church does at age 12 to help a child understand here's what it means to follow the things of Christ. He writes to one named Theophilus. Now that may be a generic term. The word Theo is God. Phileo is love to you who is a God, to you as a God lover. That could be a person's name. That could be a generic to all of you who love God. It could be somebody that wanted anonymity, perhaps in the very court of Herod. Maybe the court of Caesar. So I'm writing to you, God lover. I'm writing to you so that these things, verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed or so that you'll know what it means to be a Christian. Now, I, I, I'm going to move ahead quickly. Look with me in chapter 1 of Luke. Uh, excuse me, chapter, chapter 2 of Luke. I'll get this right in a minute. Chapter 1 of Luke. Well, look when we begin verse 24. You remember Gabriel came to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was a priest. Elizabeth was a tribe of Aaron. 
She was too old to have a baby. We focus on the, on the birth of Jesus saying, that can't happen. But we never stopped to say, well, then Elizabeth hadn't gotten pregnant either because she was too old. If one's too old and one's too young, the whole story's got to go unless God did it, right? So look what it says in verse 24 of Luke 1. After these days, meaning after Gabriel had announced to Zachariah and Elizabeth they're going to have a baby, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for how long? Five months. Now you're going to need that record in just a minute. Five months she was in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. She said, my husband's a priest and I couldn't even have a baby. Now God has given me favor. And in the sixth month, a sixth month of what? Her pregnancy. Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. Engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. So we've had the birth, of the, the, the pregnancy of a woman too old. And now coming to a 14-year-old not yet married. This is very strange ground. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28, and the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. She was deeply troubled. You ever, When you were 14, did things spook you easily? <laughs> You're alone by yourself, and all of a sudden this massive being with wings and a face whiter than lightning and raiment whiter than snow and a voice of thunder when he spoke and eyes are like burning fire and hair that was white, 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 showing he's of the ages, and he's standing in your presence, and his brightness is so great coming straight from the throne of God that you're shielding your eyes, and he says, you sure are favored. She says, I got reason to wonder. The same angels normally that come with a message can also come with judgment to destroy that which is wicked. She was terrified. Look what it says. Rejoice, verse 28. The angels came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And he said, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Now listen, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. Call his name Jesus. He'll be great. And we call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, I'm not optimistic, but I want to share with you several things today. Primarily, things about Jesus, about Mary's visit, about the house of David, and about the lineage of the house of David and the birth of Jesus. The Bible says the, the angel came. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to see Gabriel. In fact, I can die happy if I never see an angel. You know, through the years we've had touched by an angel and we've had stories of the angels and you go to Hallmark and see little naked babies as angels and none of those are biblical. God put a, a, an angel with a flaming sword at the gate of Eden. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw angels around throwing seraphim, wings covering their face, feet, and two with they, they were flying and they were radiant, awesome creatures, fearful, frightening, messengers that enact the power of God and the word of God and the will of God at an instant. Gabriel's main name means God is my strength. I like that. God is my strength. It means God instructed me and he entrusted me with his message. He enabled me and has empowered me. He's commanded me, go tell Mary my message. And he was there. In an instant, he was there. And the Bible says the first thing he said, I've come to do God's bidding. Don't you be afraid. I dare say if you walked out of the building before you got in the car, an angel appeared to you between your car door and you. Anybody here maybe feel like your knees might a little smite one another? Anybody feel like you might get just a little, little bit of a bump in your throat? Anybody here feel like your eyes might begin to water or you might just drop 
right there on the spot, dead as a hammer. The Bible said, I just came from God and he's brought me a message. And I've come to you, Mary in Nazareth. Nazareth was a tiny little town. In fact, I don't know why, but Nazareth, among all the villages of Judea, uh, of Galilee, had a pretty bad reputation. It, was, it wasn't big. So, some estimate it might have been 200. Most say somewhere around 150, 200 people. So it's not a big town. If you grew up in a small town, you can relate. You say, well, mine was small, but it wasn't that small. But you can imagine if there's 150 people. If you ever grew up in a church of 100 people, you, the good news is you know everybody. Bad news is you know everybody. And they know all your business. Now, here's a young lady that's pregnant in a community of 200 people. I reckon the word would spread. <laughs> How fast does a fire burn across the prairie? And so suddenly this angel appears to a woman in Nazareth. And Nazareth was not a big place, nor was a popular place. And in fact, many have said, I don't know why, I don't know why the prophecy is that Jesus will be a Nazarene. Where is that? It's found in Isaiah 11.1. 1. For the... You remember, Hebrew does not have vowels. The original Hebrew does not have vowels. It just has consonants. And the three consonants for Nazareth are netzer, N-Z-R. And the word netzer not only means, not only means Nazareth, it means shoot or branch. Shoot or branch. So where we heard that one day there will be a shoot or a branch that's going to make a difference for all eternity. Isaiah 11, 1 for in Isaiah 11.1, 1, here's what it says. From the, from the root or the stump of Jesse, a shoot will spring forth. A natser will spring forth. What does it mean from the stump or the root? When you cut a bush down in your yard, you know this. Some of you cut down a bush year after year and say, that baby just won't die. Because every time you cut it down next spring, here come new shoots. And you cut it down, put poison on it, on the other side, new shoots. It's, it's almost indestructible. Olive trees are like that. That's why so often they burn olive That's why they burn olive oil in the temple. Because so often an olive tree, if you cut it down to the stump, the roots will spring new shoots. And an olive tree can be hundreds if not thousands of years old because it's just almost impossible to kill it. The Bible said after all the kings of Israel, you remember what happened to Israel? It's, it divided after Solomon because of Solomon's wickedness. Divided after Solomon. The Bible says after that the tribes went, were dispersed and literally there was no king of Israel because uh, soon there will be no king of Israel because of captivity and, and the diaspora, the dispersion. And the Bible says suddenly when all the kings of Israel were gone and all the glory of Israel was gone and the nation was gone and the temple had been destroyed, there was no Israel left. There was a stump, a root, but, but no evidence. There was something beneath that God hadn't finished, but there was no glory. There was no presence. And the Bible says, but don't despair. When it's taken down to the very root, don't despair because there's going to come a shoot that's going to change everything. Isaiah 11.1 says there's going to be a natser born, and that's what it says here. Isaiah 11.1 says there's going to be a, a Nazarene come who's going to make all the difference, and his name's going to be Jesus. I think it's interesting when you look. He came from Galilee, Nazareth, a hated place. You know what it says of Jesus and Isaiah? I don't know why Nazareth was hated. Maybe it's just they were just, and forgive me, some of us grew up that way. There are places that when I was a boy growing up, you go to a really fancy place, somebody invite you or take you somewhere really nice. My mom always said, now be on your best behavior. Why? We, were, we were po' folks. Po' folks talked about us. I mean, we were, we were, we were down there. 
And then the amazing thing is, when you go somewhere really nice, it doesn't take long to realize I am way out of my element. But guess what? When they see you, they think, who invited him? <laughs> Y'all never been in that situation, I can tell. But, but when you are, you realize I don't belong here. And maybe it's just that Nazarenes were so country and so hick and so backward, people said, Psh, you don't need to wipe them off. There's 200 people. What do they got? What, they, what would they know? In fact, you remember when Nathaniel heard that Jesus had been discovered and he was from Nazareth? What was his first question? Can anything good come from what? No kidding. So, so here was this village of nobodies and a village that had a bad reputation. And isn't it just like God to take what nobody else wants and make it something wonderful? Only God could take a, a trough and use the French word manger. And we say manger. Isn't that beautiful? It's a, it's a feeding trough. Who, who but God could take an old stable? And we forever say, and he was born in a stable. And we say it with such poetic glow. We forever have this heart tenderness toward a place where hay and cattle graze. Who, who but God could take an instrument of death called a cross and make it so beloved by Christians, you women will get it gold or nickel plated, uh, silver plated, and wear around your neck. He's real good at taking the nobodies to make them somebody so he can tell everybody about that somebody that gave them hope forever. And the Bible says when Jesus came to, when the angel came to, to Nazareth to a, to a virgin named Mary, the world would say, you got to be kidding. Oh, that's those old people. They, they're trying their best to get some status. That's Nazareth. You, you could expect that from them. You know what Isaiah would say of Jesus? He related to those people. He said he, he'll be called despised and rejected among men, hated. Nothing about him that was attractive, comely. Maybe the promise of him being born in Nazareth was the fact that he's going to be left alone and empty, uh, alone and, and ridiculed by the people. Look with me in Luke chapter 1 just a minute. I want to show you one other thing about this house and lineage of David. I, I want you to look with me. Um, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm going between Matthew 1 and Luke. Can, can you give me a minute? Would you go back to Luke 3? I know this story. I just can't get on the right chapter. Luke chapter 3. Look with me. I want you to look at the lineage of David. Some of you may have done the 23 and me. I'm not going to do that. I'm afraid what I might find in my ancestry. They hung garlands a long time before I was born, so I don't want to know. You know what I'm saying? But have you ever thought if you did a 23 and me on Jesus? You can track him down on his mother's side. How in the world are you going to track him down on his father's side? How do you do the DNA of God? How do you do from in the beginning? That'll give you a headache. How can you show the Son of God that was fathered by the Spirit of God as the Son of the God? How can you possibly do a genealogy on his father's side? And so we have two genealogies in Scripture. One is on Mary, and one in Matthew chapter 1 is the lineage of Joseph, supposedly, it says, the father of Jesus. So let's look at that one in Mary's account about Jesus' heritage. I'm not going to look at this. I know so often when you get to, to all the beget, beget verses in Scripture, you treat them like Leviticus. Don't need that. I'll read on past. Don't you? But look with me this morning, beginning verse, verse 36. I want you to look at some of these. I don't know who's in your 23andMe list. 
But look at these. Look at this. Verse 36. Enoch was the son of Methuselah, who's the son of Lamech, who's the son of Noah, who's the son. I'm going in reverse order. So if you start at the bottom of verse 36, son of Enoch, verse 37, son of Methuselah, verse 36, Lamech, Noah, and Shem. Can we talk about this just for a minute? You've got the one Methuselah, who's the son of Enoch. Who was Enoch? He walked with God, and he was not because God took him. And then it says, but he fathered somebody before he died named Methuselah. Why do we remember him? It's the most bizarre character in Scripture to me. The Bible says of Methuselah, he lived 969 years, and here's his accomplishments, right? No. It says that Methuselah lived 969 years, and he died. That, that's discouraging to me. Wonder what they'll remember after we're gone. Wonder what they'll remember about us after we're gone. Oh, I don't mean at your funeral, that's fairly recent, but I mean years after. Years after Methuselah's 900, almost 1,000 years on the earth, no notable contribution listed. So you have Lamech, you have Methuselah, and then he gives birth, he, gives, he, he sires Lamech, and Lamech is the Father of Noah. Now, why do I want you to see that? Look at this. Remember, their, their longevity of years was many. So that means that Noah would have known, likely, Grandfather Enoch. He would have known Methuselah, certainly lived 969 years. Noah knew his daddy, and Noah is the man that was only one of eight people spared when God flooded the earth. And Noah had three sons. Now, look at this. This is the lineage of Mary. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why do we focus on Shem? What do the Jewish people call the Semitic, Semite, Shemite people? Of the descendancy of Shem came the Semitic people who were the grandsons of a man named Noah. Now that's pretty impressive. Well, let's go down and look even a little further back. Uh, f further up, look at verse 34, chapter 33 and 34. In verse 34, it says you have Abraham, who, who, who fathered Isaac, who fathered Jacob, who fathered Judah. Abraham, you remember, had two sons. Isaac is his second. Abraham had the son Ishmael out of, out, out of the will of God with, with, with his wife's maidservant, handmaiden. And Isaac was the second born, Ishmael the first born, Isaac the second born, the son of promise. So here's, here's in, Mary, in Mary's lineage, who's in your 23 and me background? In Mary's lineage is the oldest living man, Methuselah. In Mary's lineage is Noah, one of only eight spirits when God flooded the earth. In her lineage is Abraham, the father and patriarch of all the Jews. In her lineage is Jacob, whose sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's her, her lineage. Who's in your lineage? So, so, so she has Jacob, and then out of that, the Bible says she has Isaac and Jacob, and then one of those sons is named what? Judah. And what's significant about Judah? From the house of Judah shall the scepter never pass. From the house of Judah, the Messiah will come. That's not a bad lineage. Now look with me at verse 32 real quickly. Verse 32, it mentions a man named Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, Salmon, 
who was a son who was son of Boaz, and Boaz was son of Obed, and Obed was a son of Jesse. And what does the Bible say of Jesus? He's a house and lineage of David. Now look with me. Salmon, who was that? If you study scripture, Salmon is the man who founded the city of Bethlehem. Here's Mary, who's in her lineage is Enoch, who walked with God and was not, who gives birth to Methuselah. And then in her lineage is Abraham, the father of the Jews, and Isaac and Jacob, and one named Judah. And from Judah you have the one Salmon who gave birth to the city of Bethlehem. And Salmon married, you remember Salmon married, and when he married he had a son named Boaz. You remember the man Boaz? He's the hero of the book of Luke, uh, book of Ruth, you remember? When Ruth and Naomi, Naomi had two sons, Malan and Killian, you remember? And when Elimelech's sons died, uh, uh, when Elimelech's sons died, uh, Ruth and Naomi stood with their mother, uh, Ruth and, um, mm -hmm, her, stood with Naomi, right? And, thank you. I knew it'd come to me. Thank you, Rocky. But, but, <laughs> I'll give you an assist on that one. But here's the point. You remember they stood with Naomi, and, and Naomi said, you need to go back to your people. I don't have any more sons. And if I had a son now, by the time he grew up marriage age, you'd be too old. You go back to your people. Remember, or Orpah said, I I'll go back. And they kissed each other at the party. Ruth said, I'm not going. Now, now, now think about it. You're in a distant country. You're cut off from your people. Your husband's died. Your father-in-law's died. And your mother-in-law says, the very best for you, you need to go back to your people and see if they can provide for you as a widow. She says, I'm not going. No, 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 I mean you can go home. We'll, we'll make sure you get a caravan and get you home safely. It's not risky. You can go home. I'm not going back to my people. That, that was either a complete act of disagreement with her family, and I don't think so, or a complete act of trust. And I see something in you and your heritage Naomi, that I really want in my life. And the Bible says she went with Naomi. And you remember Naomi, Naomi took Ruth back. And Ruth married a man named Boaz. And out of Boaz's marriage, there came a man named Obed. And out of Obed's marriage came a man named Jesse. And out of Jesse came a man named David, the house and lineage of which would be the Messiah. Now, now, I want, having looked at the lineage of David, just been, turn with me now. I'm finally in chapter 1, but another gospel. Look at Matthew. Look with me in Matthew chapter 1. I want to show you four things, and we're through. So if the house of David, we know, came because of the lineage of Mary. And then we come to Matthew, and I want you to see this. There are three people, four people listed that surely don't make any sense. If you'll look with me, beginning in, in verse 2, I'm going to be Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to begin, and we're going to go down through verse 6. Now, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob. This is the lineage. Well, let me back up so you can see it. This is the lineage. It says the historical record of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, but it's along the, sign, the lines of Joseph. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac Jacob, and Jacob Judah, and his brothers, and Judah fathered Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And then you look at verse 5, and Salmon, who's the founder of Bethlehem, fathered Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab and Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Four women that sure don't seem like they belong. 
Judah was there by Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? Uh, the Bible says, or Judah, excuse me, Judah was there by Tamar. You remember Tamar? The Bible says of Tamar in Genesis 38, she was a woman who had gotten into the family of Judah. This is the lineage of the Messiah. The Bible says Judah had three sons, if you remember, Ur, Ornan, and Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H, had three sons. And the Bible says that Tamar married the first boy, Ur, but because he was wicked, Scripture says in Genesis 38, God killed him. Now, I don't know what he did. I don't know what was his besetting sin or what his blasphemy was. But before they really could be married and have children, God just killed him. And you remember the culture, they said, okay, if a, if a man dies, then his brother marries his wife and has sons for her. They have sons and children so that in her old age, she has somebody to care for her and the line of the brother can continue. So, so now she's married Ur and he died and she married Ornan, brother number two. But Ornan likewise did not do what he should do in order to provide children for her. And so God struck him dead. Now she's over two. She's married the first two boys, and, and, and Judah says to her, I'll give you my third son, and you can marry him. But he knew he was lying. He had no intention of giving his son to Tamar and Tamar to his son. So if you remember the story, Tamar left, and the word came to her that, that her father-in-law was in a near, nearby village, and, and that if she went there, she could probably meet him. Well, she did something that's pretty despicable. The Bible says she put on a black veil and she sat by the robe as if she sat by the road in this robe as if she was a prostitute. Now Judah, can I remind you, this is the lineage of Jesus. She sits by the side of the road like a prostitute, and when he comes by, when Judah comes by, she in Genesis 38, I know it's gonna shock you, you can read it for yourself, she seduces him and says, If you want in essence, you want sex, I'm willing. He said, how much? She said, he, he, she said, what will you give me? He said, a young goat. I'll give you one of my young goats to be your own if you'll go have sex with me. Now, this is Judah in the lineage of Jesus. The Bible says that when they got to wherever they were going to do this deed, she said, uh, what guarantee do I have that you'll give me the goat? He said, what do you want? I want your staff and your signet. I want that the seal. I want that which you use as a press to seal your document so there'll be no question who gave me, who, who did I sleep with that's the father of my child. She's holding the staff of the patriarch Judah and she has his seal in her hand. Three months later, it's discovered that the former daughter-in-law of Judah is pregnant. And he does what a patriarch does, kill her. The only way she could have a son is through prostitution. She married both my boys and they're dead. She's not remarried, so evidently she's a harlot. Kill her. And so they went to get her to kill her. And she said, wait just a minute. Can I paraphrase? Not so fast, boys. You may want to go get Judah. Why would we get him? He made the command, you bring him here. They brought Judah out, and he said, what's the problem? She said, I want to show you the father of my child. And she presented publicly his staff and his signet ring. You think your sins won't find you out? I think his face was probably turning pretty bright red at that point. And the Bible says at that moment, at that moment, he said of her, she is more righteous 
than I am. What does that mean? As a patriarch, I've sinned against God and my family. As a patriarch, I've sinned against my sons because this was their wife. The father has slept with the wife of his sons. As a patriarch, I brought shame on my whole tribe because now the one worthy of death is not her. It's me. What in the world? Maybe that's not supposed to be. That's Matthew's gospel, verse 3. Judah fathered Perez by Tamar. How in the world did she wind up in the lineage of Jesus? Well, don't, don't, don't lose heart. We're going to try another one. Look down there with me in verse 5. Salmon fathered by Boaz by Rahab. You remember Rahab. She's found in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. Rahab. Now, now you know it says Tamar acted as a prostitute, though she wasn't. She seduced her father-in-law like a prostitute. She wasn't, but that was the way she was managing to say, I will get a son by your, by your household. And she did. But when you get to Rahab, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing about lineage and households. She's a harlot. What does that mean? She's, she's a paid prostitute, evidently good at it. How do we know? She had a wall, a home near the city gate, and the back of it, the back of it was into the city wall. What does that mean? I have great protection. I, I, I'm against the strongest fortress in the city. I'm near the city gate. What that's, what's that, why is that good for business? When men came in, came in, they'd etch in stone symbols that represented the place, the way of the process. We found those in traveling to Middle East, they'd have stones in Pompeii. They had stones pointing men to the direction of the nearest prostitute. So, so if the city gate is over here and her house is in the wall, she's got prime location for business. Her name's Rahab and she's a harlot. And here come two, here, here come men spying for the land, uh, spying out Jericho for the purpose of coming back in with the army and destroying it. And when those messengers from Israel came in, they, they realized the best place for a stranger to hide is a place where there's always a lot of men coming and going, a lot of people coming and going, many of them foreigners coming and going, because nobody's going to suspect a man showing up at a prostitute's house. That's what men many times do in a foreign city. And so here come the spies of Israel, and they go right into her house, and immediately she says, you're of that one who's the God of Israel Everyone in this city knows your camp not far from here, and we're terrified by your God. When's the last time any of our enemies said of America, we're terrified of you because we know your God and you're very loyal to him? Been a long time, hasn't it? Bible says, Rahab said, we're terrified by your God, and I'm going to give you lodging, but I want something in return. They said, what do you want? They said, I want to be spared when, you're, when your God destroys our city. I want me and my family to be spared. So here's what they said. You remember the story. Her house, remember her house, butted up against an outside wall, and they would have windows in the house. So here was the deal. They said, you lower, Genesis 38, you lower a scarlet red, a red rope outside, outside the window, on the outside of the wall, and when we see the scarlet thread, you know when... God says, you put the scarlet over the doorpost in Israel. I'll spare your house when the angel of death comes. The Bible says when you, in, in the days of Exodus, it says when you, when, you see, when you see the blood, 
I will, I will spare you. In, in the Garden of Eden, when you see the animal coverings that had to come with the shedding of blood, then you will truly be spared from the death, though you'll be exiled from the garden. If I see the scarlet thread, by the way, the only way the blood of Jesus has any effect on you is when it's applied. You don't get saved by saying, I, I know that. No, 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 no. It's not intellectual assent. You have to apply the blood of Christ to cleanse your sin. So he said, when I see out the window the scarlet rope, our men will come in and deliver you. And you know what happened? Before they marched around the city, the spies came back to the house of Rahab. And they took her, she and her family and those friends that are massed in her house, all that were under the scarlet rope, all that were under the symbol of the blood sacrifice, all that represent those saved by grace, come with me. And the spies led Rahab and her friends out to a safe place, and you know the story. Once on the seventh day, the children of Israel marched around the wall seven times. It collapsed, and they burned the remnants of the city to the ground. Why in the world is a prostitute? Why in the world is a prostitute? In verse 5, and of all things, who, she, who's, who, did she, who did she give birth to? A man named Boaz. Well, I mean, that can't be the same Boaz that became the husband of Ruth. Well, it must be. Look at verse 5. And Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. <laughs> so you have Tamar, who slept with her father-in-law. You have Rahab, who's a prostitute who was spared by God because of her faith. You have a woman named Ruth who refused to leave Naomi and went after her people and said, your people are going to be my people and your God, my God. Where you go, I'll go. And where you, where, where you abide, there I'll abide. And she did. But then we come to that one other. Have you ever been labeled by your sin for life? Look at verse 6, second half. And David fathered, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Isn't it amazing every time you hear David's name, you think of adultery. Well, not so much. Pretty much the way we remember presidents is what they did wrong. If I mention Bill Clinton, is there a lady that comes to mind? I don't mean Hillary. It's an amazing thing when we think of those in prominence and they did very, very wrong things. We always remember not their accomplishments. We remember their besetting sin. The Bible says of Bathsheba that she gave birth to Solomon, son of David, who would build the temple. And his mother, his mother had been bathing, if you remember. His mother had been bathing herself in the night up on the roof, cool evening, spring of the year. You know, spring's a dangerous time. You don't sleep real well. Sun's up longer. You got some time there. And if you're not careful, you're getting something you shouldn't. David's out walking. His troops were at battle. He was in his 50s. So don't think, well, he's just a young man. No, he, he knew better. He's in his 50s and he steps out of the edge of his roof. And then the generals and the cabinet and all the who's who had their houses closest to that palace of the president, of the king. And David looks out over his roof. And right, roof is, and right there's the roof of of Uriah and he sees his wife unclothed and taking a bath and everything in him says I want her sad when you were driven by glands instead of God isn't it because your glands will always take you further than you want to go make you stay longer than you want to stay make you pay more than you want to pay Bible says go get her David said go get her and he slept with her now 
I don't know what the Me Too movement was in that era, but if there had been one, she had said, Me Too. The king told me I was going to be his, and I don't, you can't say no to a king. And so you remember the story. He slept with Bathsheba, and she got pregnant. Well, then he tried to cover, which is always true. I don't know what you did when you tried to cover your worst sin, but it probably worked out like his. The Bible says he tried to cover his sin, and he brought Uriah in from the field, and he said, I just want to get a report, and while you're going in and stay home tonight and you can go back tomorrow, he wouldn't go into his wife. He slept out in the front of his house because he said the next morning, David said, why didn't you go in to your wife thinking surely you'll make love to her, and when she shows up pregnant, nobody will say anything. So, yeah, that's that night he came home. He said, My, your men are in the field fighting, and they're under attack. Why would I go in, and, and I'm going to just use common terms why would I go and eat good and have pleasure when my brothers are suffering in war I cannot do that he had more character than the king and so the second night it says David got him drunk thinking if he's not at his senses go many people do things drunk and said if I'd been sober I wouldn't have done that well not necessarily see he he was drunk at David's bidding but even drunk he still didn't go into Bathsheba you remember the story and finally David said okay and he he called on Joab and he said, I'll tell you what you do. You put Uriah, he's a, he's a great warrior. He won't think anything about it. You put him, can you imagine taking one of your best soldiers and saying, kill him? Does that sound like a man after God's own heart? Put him in the front of the battle. He says, as soon as he gets to the front of the battle, you give the word to everybody else to pull back. And that way when the arrows and the, and the, and the spears start showering, they'll shower on one and he's a dead man. That's exactly what happened. You remember the report came back and said also Uriah the Hittite is dead. David thought, Phew. Then you remember the firstborn of Bathsheba, by the way, unnamed. Firstborn of David and Bathsheba died. And Nathan went in as a preacher and told him a little story about a man who had only one sheep. And somebody stole that one sheep. And David said, that guy ought to die. Nathan said, do you want to be sure you said that right? Absolutely. Anybody take one, a, man, one man, a man's only precious little lamb ought to die. Nathan said, you're the man. What in the world is a woman like Bathsheba doing in the lineage of Jesus? I'll tell you. I know us. And I'm about to say something's going to make me very sad, but it's very true. We're a pretty sorry lot because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What if God said to any one of you, I'm done with you. You're useless to me. You're dead to me. You're a sinner. And you knew full well what you're doing. Far as I'm concerned, I wipe my hands of you. I want nothing to do with you anymore forever. Wouldn't that be fair? Yeah. Because the wages of sin is, was, and shall ever be death. I don't deserve audience with God. And I'm in bad company. I don't deserve the blessings of God. And I'm in bad company. So how in the world did these four people, Tamar, Rahab, Solomon's wife, Uriah, how in the world did they wind up 
Solomon's wife Bathsheba, Solomon's mother Bathsheba, how did they wind up in Scripture of the lineage of Jesus? Because here's the picture. From the lineage of those who are great sinners, it reminds us there is no sin that God cannot forgive. Aren't we grateful? There is no wrongdoing that God cannot restore. There is no loss that He cannot reinstate. And there is no person so far from His grace that there is not yet opportunity for a new beginning. That's the story of Christmas. And in the very lineage of David, we see the promise of God to bless a shepherd named David. And we all think, what a marvelous man he was. Really? When we had a president that was known to be fooling around with a woman, did we say, oh, that's just the way men are? No, it was on the news for a long time. What if we took your besetting sin? In fact, let's just do this. Who today would like to tell us your besetting sin? Just stand up. Just announce it to everybody. Let's just make this a living Bible. I want you to stand up and just tell us your very worst moment in life. Just stand up. I really blew it and here's what it is. See, the truth is, you say, Brother Nick, I don't, I don't want to do that. Nor do I. And you know why? Because my worst moment, God's forgotten. Because I confessed it. He forgave it, and he removed it from me to be remembered when? No more. One story, and I'm through. A young man named Ryan Speedo Green. I'd never heard of him until I found this illustration. Ryan Green was a young man born in a very poor part of Virginia, in a very poor part of a city where there's crime and drugs and prostitution and everything immoral and ungodly. At age nine, in the classroom, he showed up to school on the first day of school, and his teacher called his name, and he said, I'll show you I'm here, and he picked up his chair and threw at the teacher. She immediately took his desk out of the room and his chair out of the room and said, young man, you'll sit on the floor and learn from the floor until you've learned enough to sit in a chair and act like a gentleman. At age 12, he pulled a knife on his mother and brother in a moment of anger, and they came in and shackled his hands and feet and led him away to a juvenile center. He'd met a teacher, the same teacher he threw to a chariot was named Elizabeth Hughes. And a caseworker was signed him that fortunately had great mercy and background in psychology and understood very quickly this young man's just got a lot of built up anger. Miss Hughes asked for the privilege to come to see him in the detention center, that teacher he threw a chariot. And when she saw him, she said these words to him. He said, I'll never forget. She looked at me at age 12, sitting there with shackles, and said, Ryan. Don't let this moment define you. You can do better than this. You can be better than this. Believe me. He was later released and went back into a different school under a different principal and different teacher, and he at least began to try. And that school took him on a field trip to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. He was, first of all, enthralled by the building and its size and beauty, but then when they had... They got to hear the marvelous musical Carmen. A lady named Denise Graves sang an African-American woman. He said, I'd never seen anybody in my skin color that could sing that way. And that moment when I heard her sing and I saw the audience applaud, I said, someday I'm going to sing on that stage. 
because of his desire to sing, the teachers got him in touch with a man named Robert Green. Robert was a masterful voice teacher and coach. He knew that he knew that Ryan didn't have any money, so he said, I'm going to take you on and I'm going to teach you. But here's the deal. You're going to be at every practice. You're going to do what I say. And, and Ryan said, I'm going to do what you say because I want to sing on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera. And the teacher, Robert Green, didn't say, you're a, that didn't go happen, kid. You're pitiful. You give that dream up. He said, okay, you want to do it. Here's the steps you got to take. He treated it just like it was going to be so. As he treated and taught Robert Green, uh, excuse me, as he taught Ryan, Ryan began to do all the things that Robert Brown had told him to do. And Ryan Green came to the point he could sing beautifully and he was invited to sing in this bass baritone voice he was invited to sing on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera nine years after one teacher said I'm going to help you get there nine years later he was the one he, not, not Denise but Ryan was on stage and they stood in ovation of applauding him today he lives in Vienna he sung operas in every, in many languages in every part of the world. He's married, and he's a part of the Vienna, Aust uh, Vienna State Opera in Vienna, Austria. Why would I tell you that story? Would anybody give a kid that drew a knife on his mom at 12 a chance of ever being anything but trash? Would anybody throw a desk at a teacher when he's nine and everything? Boy, that kid's got deep problems. He'll never amount to nothing. Would anybody have given you a shot at 13, 15, 18, 22, yesterday? Why are these people in the lineage of Jesus? For the same reason you and I are in the family of God. The amazing grace is there is no sin he cannot forgive. There is no debt he cannot pay. There is no hole he cannot fill. There is no mountain so high he cannot climb it and get you down. There is nothing been done that you've done that he is shocked by and nothing you'll ever do that surprises him. His grace says, I love you. I want you for my own. I'll forgive you. I'll make you my child. I will walk with you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I will lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. And when it comes time to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll take you by the hand and lead you to the place I've prepared for you forever. That's a pretty good story, isn't it? That's just the background of the story of the birth of Jesus. I hope you'll hang around for the rest. Stand with me, would you? Father, we thank you today for the privilege of studying. And we see the sins of some and think, oh my goodness. But the truth is, when you say, see us, our sins are just the same. I pray today for those in this room that say, I don't want God to give up on me. Today I want to come give my life to him. And you come right now. Say, I'm ready to turn my life over to Christ. I want him to forgive me. And I want that new beginning. Then I ask you to come. Maybe there's some in the room today say, Brother Nick, I'm just ready to be a part of this church. Maybe some just want to come spend time alone with God in prayer. Father, you know the needs. Speak, we pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing. You come. Won't you do it? Right now.